I'm glad that you mentioned our group, group ministries. That's such a vital part of, uh, of what we do here. It's great to gather together on Sundays on a regular basis, but uh, these midweek groups where we have a chance to go a little deeper in life and, and some of the situations, challenges that are happening in our world and within each other's homes, uh, we can come together, encourage, support, pray for one another. So definitely go and check that out and see what group you can get yourself involved with. So if you were here last week, I wasn't. I was in California. <laughs> but uh, that sounds better than it actually was. Because uh, it actually was cold and rainy the whole time I was there. And I was on courses which stuck us in a room for 12 hours a day for the whole time. So I drove from the California airport to the California dorm. And so I did enjoy that part. <laughs> but the rest of it was indoors. Uh, so uh, I was glad to be away for a couple of days, however. And I appreciate Pastor Tony coming in, uh, filling into the pulpit for us while I was away. But today we get back on track with our sermon series. We started a few weeks back, our Mission, Vision, Values series. If you recall, almost a month ago now, we talked about this idea of a mission, that we all have kind of a mission, all churches have a mission that is grounded in the Great Commission. And the Great Commission talks about how we are a sent people, a sent people who are to be multipliers, who are to go forth in this transformational power that God has, has brought into us and allows us to go forward in. And this idea, and this is where our sermon title comes from, or the series title comes from, that we are looking to find that mission on how we can merge with what God is already up to. It's not that he's been sitting at, a, at the side waiting to merge with us. It's us saying, no, he's like a freeway who's always running, and how do we merge with what he's doing and join him in his will and his plans for us and for this church and for the community that's around us. And so picking up on the idea that we are a sent people who are to be multiplying and transforming force in the world and in our community, we said that our, our mission as a church, the, the new language we want to use to explain our mission as a church is to be inviting people to experience a life that is better with Jesus now and forever. And how do we do that? We do it by living out his grace, his truth, and his love. The week after that, we talked about this idea of a vision. Now, a vision is a preferred picture, a picture of a preferred future. That if we are successful in living out our mission, what would that look like in the future? And we talked about how if we can be successful in inviting people to discover a life that is better with Jesus, that, that even in our community here in which God has planted us, that a picture of that preferred future would be to see West Meadows, to see us as the body of Christ here in this area, to see us as the heart of new life in Lewis Farms. Now when we talk about new life, there's this idea of new spiritual life that, that grows up as Jesus comes into a, person's, uh, into a person's life and into their heart. But also we can bring new life to, to people, to places, to, to institutions. We can bring new life to the, to the moral and the social fabric of this region around us. That can happen when people discover that life is better with Jesus. And then we moved on to start talking about our core values. Core values are these, these convictions that guide our actions and reveal our priorities. And two weeks ago, I, I introduced the first one, the first core conviction, which is countercultural love. Countercultural love, we describe by saying that we go forth to, to share God's never changing love with an ever changing world. That God is the constant that can be brought into a person's life and into society. That never changing love into an ever changing world. If you need to refresh yourself on any of those messages, if you missed any of them, you can subscribe to uh, the podcast on iTunes or on Google Play. You can go to our website at westmeadows.org, or you can even watch the video of the messages at our website at westmeadows.org. So we encourage you to do that if you missed or need to refresh on any of those. 
But today, I want to I introduce you, I want to reveal to you our second core value. And it's a core value you've heard mentioned a little bit earlier in the service already that we refer to as heartfelt hospitality. Now, when we talk about hospitality, we probably have a bit of an idea of what hospitality is. That it's about this relationship between a host and a guest. And when a host and a guest come together, it, hospitality also speaks to the events that take place when they're together. It's the, the feelings that are created in the mix of that relationship. And how that goes leaves a lasting impression. You've probably heard the saying at some point where it says, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. You heard that before? You don't get a second chance to make a first impression. And that's a very true phrase. And that first impression actually might happen and it might form faster than you actually think. The research has been done into this at universities throughout North America as to how quickly that first impression is formed. And they've come to define what's referred to as the 7-Eleven rule. Here's the 7-Eleven rule. That in the first seven seconds you meet somebody, you make 11 decisions about them in seven seconds. You make decisions about their appearance, their successfulness, their trustworthiness, their background, their competency, their relationship and similarity to yourself. And then after that seven seconds, from second eight beyond, you don't even think about this, but, but socially what goes on in your mind is that for the rest of the time that you're with that person, you're gathering evidence either to reinforce that first impression or to refute it. The 7-Eleven rule. Same thing happens in organizations. It happens when you walk into a restaurant. In those first seven seconds, how does it look? How does it smell? How's the crowd? When you walk into a business, and certainly when you walk into a church, the same thing happens. Based upon the welcome, the appearance, the warm friendliness of the people, it forms these impressions. And because that happens within us, in these very few short moments, when you first meet somebody, a person starts to face some very critical questions. Questions like, do I belong here? Should I stay or, or should I go? Do I even want to be here? And based upon these sorts of questions, it leaves an impression that saturates the person's view of the individual, of the organization, and also influences the level of future interactions that they're going to have with that person or that organization. Now in church, this leads people who come into our doors or the doors of other churches or, or people who meet you in the street who know you as a follower of Christ. This leads them to form an impression about us here at West Meadows, but also an impression about who God is, because we're his representatives in the world around us. So I hope you can understand how serious this topic of hospitality actually is. It's a very important area for us to discuss. Now, I've blown it a few times on being hospitable. I'm sure you're kind of like me, and there's a few times you can look back and go, oh, phew, I blew that one pretty bad. Now, there's one in particular I recall from about probably about 15 years ago or so, when, uh, when we lived in Prince George still, and Nadine and I had a new neighbor move in beside us. And they moved in, and I hadn't had a chance to meet them yet. It was a busy week, uh, but I kind of saw them. I just hadn't gone to introduce myself to them yet. But Sunday morning, we get up, we're getting in the vehicle, getting the kids loaded up, we're about to head to the church down the road, and wouldn't you know it, they're getting in their vehicle, and they're pulling out of the driveway at the same time. Now, they're a few seconds ahead of me, so we're following them down the road, and they go to my church. I'm like, yes, I get to meet them at church. This is two birds with one stone, right? I don't have to walk over there later on in the day and meet them. I can do it now. And plus, they're, hey, they're church-going folk. That's awesome. So as I follow him into the parking lot, he pulls into my parking spot. Well, 
like it was my parking spot, but it was where I traditionally parked every week. And so I thought, I know, it'll be funny if I mention that. So he parks, I park beside him, he gets out, and I walk up to him, I just go, hey, you're in my spot. Not everybody appreciates my humor the same way. Now, I left a first impression on him. I was trying to be funny. I thought, hey, this is like an icebreaker. I can get into a conversation beyond that. No, that was a deal breaker. That wasn't an icebreaker. First impression of me, his new neighbor, but also first impression of the church. And he starts asking questions, do I belong here? Do I want to be here? Should I stay or should I go? So don't be like Pastor Mark and ever say to somebody, you're in my spot, you're in my pew, or anything of the sort, because it leaves those first impressions. Now, I have some good news for you. Here's the good news. That during the season of research that the next team and that the elders were doing as we were forming this mission, vision, values, during the newcomers' lunches we hold every few months over the past couple of years, hospitality has been something people have mentioned time and time again as a realized value. This is not necessarily an aspirational value for our church. It's a realized value that exists among us already. So that's fantastic. I want to thank you for being a welcoming people for those who come through our doors. And because of that today, I don't want to focus upon how we do hospitality. I want to go a step beyond that. I want to go a step beyond the how and talk to you about why. Why do we do hospitality? What is our motivation? What is our purpose for doing this? And do we understand the power of hospitality when it's done well? Because heartfelt hospitality starts with a smile and a handshake. But it goes well beyond that. It goes beyond that to helping people to understand that they are wanted. And when a person understands that they are wanted, they'll start to open their lives up. And when they open up their lives, God can then touch their soul. So when we talk about heartfelt hospitality, we say that we want to cultivate a sense of belonging that softens hearts and saturates lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. We cultivate a sense of belonging that softens hearts and saturates lives. So as we unpack this today, I want to draw your attention to a party Jesus was invited to once. And it's found in, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, in verse 36. And I invite you to turn there if you want to. If you haven't got a Bible on your phone or, or a paper Bible with you, you'll find one in the pew in front of you. And that pew Bible, it is found on page 839. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now as you're finding that, you may not have thought of this before, but the reality is if you read the Gospels and Jesus' encounters with different gatherings, he, he wasn't really a very good dinner host, or, or sorry, dinner guest. I don't know if you ever thought of that before. If you think of all the events that he got invited to, he, he tended to be rather disruptive when he got invited to parties. Whenever he went somewhere, it seems like he, he gravitated towards the wrong crowd. He'd bring up some sort of controversial topic. And usually by the end of the night, before he would go home, he'd, he'd offend the host in some fashion. You see that time and time again in these stories. And yet he still gets invited. He's repeatedly invited to come back to these dinner parties. Perhaps it's because when Jesus was there, you just quite never knew what he was going to say. You just quite never knew what was going to happen when Jesus was at your party. For example, in this story in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, where a guy named Simon, who's a Pharisee, invites Jesus over to his house for, for a dinner party. And the night begins the way you'd expect, as Jesus and the other guests arrive, and they find themselves on these very comfortable couches. And, and they're these couches where you would kind of recline on them around a table and relax and, and just talk and discuss with one another. 
Now, Jesus is a celebrity, basically, at this point. He's well-known, and, and I think that's part of the reason that Simon invites him over. And at events like this, when you have a VIP in your house, there is this common practice of leaving the door open. And that way, your invited guests could come in and gather around the table. But at the same time, the uninvited people, those, those of the community who were of lower social status, were welcome, kind of welcome, to come in and be in the room as well. But, but they had to stay at the perimeter. They, they couldn't come near the table where the invited guests were, but they could come in and kind of be in the perimeter of the room, or, or they could be in the room adjacent. And they did that because this was a way for Simon, in this case, to kind of boast. He could boast about the fact that this is my house, and welcome to my party, and, and this is my special guest who's going to deliver a message because I have arranged for this great event of which you can be an observer of. And so while this is going on, a well-known sinful woman in the area, probably, probably a prostitute, enters the room holding a jar. And she moves from the wall to the table. And we pick up the story in verse 38, where it says, As she stood behind him, Jesus, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, and she kissed them, and she poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man Jesus were a prophet, he would know exactly who this woman is who's touching him. He would know who she is. He would know that she is a sinner. This is a notorious woman. And she crashes Simon's party. And she approaches a table where there is no place for her. She approaches a table where no one has set a place for her. And as she comes towards that table, she falls at the feet of Jesus, just weeping. Just weeping. I can't imagine how many tears it takes to wash feet. But she is weeping and producing those tears. And, and she's pouring out this humble expression of love towards him. And out of such a deep, pure, raw emotion, you can't help but understand that it grabs everyone's attention in the whole room. And some guests were wondering, well, well what could she possibly want? Why is she broken with, with social norms and she's, she's come to the table? She must want something. Other guests are probably thinking, well, why is she crying? And they're concerned about, about what's happening for her. Not Simon. Simon decides just to rebuke them both. He rebukes the woman saying, this, this sinful woman, she should know her place. She doesn't belong here. Doesn't she know she belongs on the sidelines? She belongs in the perimeter. She doesn't belong at the table at the foot of my guest. And he even rebukes Jesus, his guest. He's saying, well, if he knew, you know, prophets have this divine knowledge. If he was a prophet, he would know exactly who she is. He would exactly know what type of woman she was. And if he knew that, he would put a stop to this immediately. Well, contrary to Simon's conclusion, Jesus does know exactly what's going on. He does know exactly why she's crying. So he says this in verse 40. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, Simon replies. And then Jesus says, there are two people who both owe money to a certain moneylender. One of them owed him 500 denarii, and the other owed him 50. But neither of them had the money to pay. So, he forgave the debts of both. Now, Simon, which of them will love him more? Which of them will love him more, Simon? And Simon replies, well, I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. Now, the scenario that Jesus is presenting here is a 
situation where there's two people. One has what amounts to about two months' wages of debt. The other one has a debt in the amount of about two years' worth of debt. But regardless of how big or how small those debts are, neither of them are able to pay even a penny of it back. Now, the debt collector had the right to kind of turn up the muscle, to head out there and shake them down and, and force them to, to, to give back the money. Back in that culture, debt collectors even had the ability to imprison you and to take, take your possessions, your home, your family members as slaves, throw you in prison until you could pay them back, which was a crazy idea because if I'm in prison, how am I going to pay you back? But they had the right to do those sorts of things to reclaim what was owed to them. But that's not what happens in the situation. In this situation, the money collector forgives the debt. Now, it's an act that is above and beyond. An act that would leave a positive impression upon the person who is forgiven of that debt. Dare we say, even would start to love the money collector. Which leads to the question, well, who would love him more? And, and Simon answers logically, we're responding, well, the one who was given more. And we understand that. If, if, if I was forgiven more, then I would love more. I would respond more. We can understand that, right? And Jesus even affirms it. Jesus affirms it and says, yes, I can understand that answer. Your answer is correct. But that correct answer is then used as Jesus to be a gateway where he reveals a relational ethic of the kingdom of God. He establishes this foundation that whoever's been forgiven much will love much. And uses that as a springboard to reveal this relational ethic of God's kingdom. And he continues to explain this in verse 44. And notice how it starts. It says that as he looked at the woman, this woman who was weeping, this incredible expression of love. I, I, just, I imagine Jesus looking at her and locking eyes with her. And as he looks at her, he speaks to Simon. He doesn't look at Simon. He looks at the woman and he speaks to Simon. And he says, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and she has wiped them with her hair. Simon, you didn't give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I got here has not stopped kissing my feet. Simon, you didn't give me any oil for my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, and all those who can hear me, therefore, I tell you, her sins, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Hospitality in the ancient Near East at this time was a big deal. See, somebody who, who owned a house and had some guests or some travelers pass by was obligated to provide things like food, water, and shelter. This goes all the way back to like Genesis 18 when we read about how Abraham uh, welcomed uh, three visitors, three strangers who would come by who turned out to be angels. Now it was also common in this culture that when somebody came into your house, you would have a servant come wash their feet. This was a, a form of refreshment a person, as you can imagine, walking around in dusty, dirty streets with sandals on all the time, to have your feet washed would feel so good, just to be cleansed of that. But foot washing was also a, a way of saying, I accept you. It was a way of saying, I have no hostile intent towards you. You are welcome into my home. And if it was a VIP person who was coming to your home, you might even go to the additional step of having like scented oil that they could put over top of their hair and kind of anoint themselves with. And if they were a beloved guest... You would even greet them with a kiss. Simon did none of these things. Simon did none of these typical hospitable things that you would do, in particular for a VIP guest. Ironically, it is the unwelcome woman who does these things for Jesus. It is her who extends this hospitality to Jesus. Now I want to be clear with you. 
that, that her act of love is not the reason that Jesus says she's forgiven. He doesn't say you're forgiven because you gave me a kiss, he anointed me, and you washed my feet. He's not saying that's why you were forgiven. You see, those expressions of love were the result of her being forgiven. And that lets us know that clearly there's kind of a story behind the story here. There must be some previous encounter that she had with Jesus that led her to these expressions of love. There, there's, it's not recorded in Scripture, but clearly there's some sort of encounter where she heard him teach. Something where, where she saw his character displayed to others and she thought, hey, maybe me too. Some situation where she experienced his love. And it had this impact on her. It gave her this sense of belonging that she hadn't felt ever, maybe not for a very, very long time. And the sense of belonging softened her heart. And the message of hope that Jesus brought into her life saturated it. In this town, she was known as that sinful woman. And she wasn't welcome very many places and certainly not by very many people. But no longer did she have to live as a wallflower on the fringe of society. Because she had been welcomed to the table by Jesus. You see, Simon judged her situation, her and the situation based upon her past record of sin. And as far as he was concerned, her value, her place in the room, her sense of belonging was all tied to the wrong she had done in the past. But when Jesus looked at her, he saw her potential. He knew the difference, the new life that could be made possible when a person experiences his love and his forgiveness. And that's why he says, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And whoever has been forgiven much, loves much. And as we see in this story, one way to express this love is seen in how we welcome and engage others. Especially those who are not like us. You see, in this story, there's a contrast between these main characters. And as we look at the contrast between them, there's a lesson on the motivation and our expressions of hospitality. We first see Simon, who I really believe is operating from selfish motives. That's why he invited Jesus to his house in the first place. It wasn't because he wanted to sit at the feet of the rabbi and learn. It's because it was selfishly motivated. The reason he invited him is I'm going to have my open door for my guest in my home. And he was kind of serving himself. Now Jesus calls us out in him. And, and inherent to the words that Jesus speaks, he's saying, be careful, Simon, because you think yourself as a little sinner. And if you think yourself as a little sinner in need of a little forgiveness, it creates this sense of piety, this sense of, of self-righteousness, this idea of I'm better than them. And therefore, since I'm a little sinner and they're a big sinner, I separate myself. Because if I got too close to them, then, you know, I couldn't do that because it would look like I'm accepting them. If I got too close to them, it might look like I'm endorsing their lifestyle, I'm endorsing their sin. And therefore, i got to keep this woman at a distance because I don't want to convey that at all. Therefore, whoever's been forgiven little or thinks they're in need of only a little forgiveness welcomes little. But then we also see in this story this sinful woman who is really the imposter in the room. And in the past, she has been delegated to the fringe of society. But she decides in this particular day to step from the shadows out into the light. Motivated by this new sense of belonging that springs forth from the new hope she has found in Jesus. She's not offered hospitality to Jesus because she owed it to him. She doesn't do it because she's obligated to do so. She does it as an expression of love. She does it from the natural byproduct of one who has been forgiven much. 
And because she knows she's been forgiven much, she loves much, and that much love needs to be expressed. You see, this woman represents the hope of all people, that all people who are invited to experience a life that is better with Jesus can have. When we see a person, perhaps on the street, we run into people at work, at school, when there's people in our church foyer, when we hold a community event, when those people come into contact with us, we make 11 decisions in seven seconds about that individual. Based upon their appearance, is their hair combed or is it messy? Are they tattooed and pierced or are they in a clean cut three-piece suit and tie? Do they look trustworthy or sketchy? Are, are they successful or are they struggling? Do they have a similar background to me or are they nothing like me at all? And based upon how those questions are answered, some people will make determinations, do I talk to them or do I ignore them? Do I accept them or do I reject them? Are they a little sinner or are they a big sinner? What I want us to understand is that from God's point of view, we're all big sinners. The difference is how much, is not how much or how little sin exists in our lives, in particular our past lives. What matters is the presence of Jesus' grace in our lives. Early in my time as a pastor, I met a, a homeless man named Larry. And Larry would come by the church literally every day. And he would come and sit on a couch in the foyer and he would drink coffee. And myself and others would come and sit beside him on that couch. And we would share a cup of coffee and we find that Larry had a hard, lonely life. He had gone through all sorts of addictions in the past. He had been arrested more times than we could count. He had spent more years in jail than I had been in ministry. He was estranged from his friends and from his family. And because of all these events in his life, he had very little trust for anybody. He didn't look like anybody in our congregation. He didn't live or work like anybody on my staff. He didn't talk or act like less. But you know what? He was one of us. And after 10 years of him coming and sitting on the couch in the foyer and drinking coffee, after 10 years of that, where we invited him to staff lunches, we'd, we'd bring him to different events. We would visit with him. We'd pray with him. We would share our lives and his life with us. He would, he would come to all three of the services we held every Sunday. He went to church more than we did. Over 10 years of that, one night he, he was killed crossing the street. He was hit by a vehicle. And a few days after, when I did his funeral, I want to share with you some of the words that I spoke at his funeral. For those of us who sat on a couch with Larry, we know how he liked his coffee. One sweetener and one creamer. And while drinking that coffee, there's a good chance that you started a conversation, that you shared a laugh, that you heard a story. There's one thing about Larry, he always had stories to tell. Some of them were funny, some were sad. A few were shocking, a lot of them were inappropriate. But whenever I saw Larry, I wanted to sit down with him. I wanted to hear a story. I wanted to know his story. None of us had any delusions as to who he was. We knew his knack for finding trouble. We knew the risky choices and decisions he made. We knew that some people in the world only saw him as a poor, homeless panhandler. And they assumed that there was nothing lovable about him. A lot of people wrote him off as a nuisance, as a problem to be moved on down the road. If only there were more couches in this world for Larry to have sat upon. You see, we didn't love Larry because of who he was. We didn't love him of anything he could do for us. 
Rather, we loved him because Christ first loved us. And we know the transforming power of Jesus Christ in a person's life. And day after day, Larry saw that love lived out as he was part of our church family. He heard it, he believed it, and he received it for himself. And because of that, in this world and now in heaven, he's no longer homeless. So often we surround ourselves with people with whom we share affinity. So often we surround ourselves with people who pass the 7-Eleven test and look just like us. But you know, if you look a few chapters further in Luke, you come across another party Jesus got invited to. And in Luke chapter 14, he challenged people at that party towards this, atten- towards this a tendency towards affinity. He said this to them. He says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends. Invite your brothers or sisters. You can write your, invite your relatives or you can write your rich, invite your rich neighbors. But if you do, they're just going to invite you right back. And, and then you've already been repaid. But when you hold a banquet, not, not, a, not a luncheon or dinner, when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you. See, Jesus' challenge is, is for the people at that party and for us to make room at the table for those who, who may not look like us, act, vote, pray, or believe like us, but to make room at the table for them. Because here, here's the point, is that if we're not willing to make room for others in our day, we'll never hear their story. If we're not willing to make room for others around our table, we'll never make room for them in our lives. If we're not willing to make room for others in our pew, we will never make room for them in our hearts. That's a tweetable quote for the day. If we will not make room for them in our pews, we will never make room for them in our hearts. But when we do, when we do, watch what God does around that table. Watch what God does in our hearts. Watch what he does in their lives. You see, most people we encounter will not be on the fringe of society like Larry was or or like the prostitute in Luke's gospel. Most of the people in our community that we come into contact with will appear very similar to us. On the outside anyways. But inside, there's usually one big difference. They don't know the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ. That's why our mission is to invite them to experience that life is better with Jesus by living out his grace, truth, and love before these people. You know, throughout the year, we work hard to pull off four major community events. In part because these are opportunities for us to invite the community to come be with us and for our, allow ourselves to be with them so they can experience our heartfelt hospitality. Our hospitality defined by us cultivating the sense of belonging that softens hearts and saturates lives. Now, one of these events, uh, the last one we held uh, back around Christmas time was Merry Matinee. If you were a part of that one, we, we had games, we had crafts, we had candy. All of it was free. And then people came together and they watched a movie, a Christmas movie together. It was this wonderful time for young families to connect with each other. And as we started to get the feedback, there were, there were many people from the community who came and attended that. And, and we started to hear about these different God stories that would take place. As we just came together and hosted them well. And, and we're just with them and among them enjoying the Christmas season together. One particular story I want to share with you today. is a story of a young girl who attended and had hearing aids. But the hearing aids failed. 
And that almost made her day end on a very, very low note. But it ended on a high note. You see, her mom wrote us a letter after that event, and with her permission, she allows us to share it with you. And I want to share that letter with you, read by one of our volunteers who extended and epitomized heartfelt hospitality. Thanks for an amazing time last week. My daughter Sadie and I had much-needed mother-daughter time when her teenage sisters are busy. It was so fun. The battery story is amazing. Total miracle. When the very nice gentleman offered to go look, I immediately thought to myself, he's so kind, but he mustn't know anything about hearing aid batteries. I've done this for 11 years with her and the rare time I've had one die, and I have no spare in a situation like this. There's never any hope other than going to try to find a store that A, sells hearing aid batteries and B, carries her rare size. So I just let him go, thinking I didn't want to hurt his feelings by saying it was hopeless. Where on earth would he find a battery in a church, let alone the rare size we needed? I was so mad at myself for not bringing her backup supply case and felt such mom guilt. It's so hard for her to hear, even with her hearing aid, that without it, a movie would be a big challenge basically useless. She wears a cochlear implant on the other ear, but alone, it's not enough. I can't tell you how shocked I was when he handed me that battery. My jaw dropped. But even then I thought, wow, he did find one amazing, but definitely won't fit, and then he'll feel bad. I popped it in and waited those long four seconds of silence. Until, what? No way, it turned on. Tears filled my eyes. I instantly thought how much God must love her and love us that he miraculously placed that battery here that day. I have no doubt it was a little God wink to tell us that he's got us, even the small stuff. Sadie is a medical miracle. I could fill pages and pages with her life story. Could you please thank him again for me? And for Sadie. I kept the battery. I had it in my pocket, just out of habit, I still had it. Shared with everybody about how this little battery helped a lady out and her daughter just enjoy the day. It touched me greatly just to know that I helped somebody enjoy their day that much. And so after telling the other people at the church about the story, I just popped it back in my pocket out of habit. Went about our day. Later on, wife and myself were at home. We were talking again about the day, and I said, hey, that project we were working on in the shop, you took that little piece of wood. We were practicing on it. What this little piece of wood was, we were working on a project. My wife, Christina, had written the word laugh. So I took the battery and placed it on the same little plaque. I keep it in my shop, and it reminds me of that day seen the smile and the joy that this little girl had that day. And just remembering to laugh during all situations.
thank you for loving and for serving our community in such a great way. And for being an instrument of God's love. You know, it's amazing what God can work through. The simplest little things. And he can use those to connect dots in a person's mind between between what happens in their world and his love. My favorite line in that whole letter that that mom from our community wrote is, I instantly thought about how much God must love my daughter and us. We didn't say those words to her. I believe that was God speaking to her and connecting those dots in her mind with us. Because we expressed heartfelt hospitality. We cultivated a sense of belonging through which people had their hearts softened and their lives are saturated by the sake of God's love and grace for them. Such a beautiful thing. Our motivation, our motivation for being hospitable, it starts with us understanding the futility of us weighing sins. As Jesus explained to Simon around that table, that if we, if we do that, it leads to this idea of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness leads to exclusion and separation. You see, if we get scales out like that, where let's say, for example, I put my sins on one side and, and we put your sins on the other side. Well, yours are heavier, right? No, I, I don't know. I don't know whose are heavier. But one of them will turn out to be heavier. And if that was the way it worked, we could say, well, yeah, one's a bigger sinner than the other. But that's not how it works. It's not a matter of mine on one side and yours on the other. It's a matter of my sins on one side and God's glory on the other side. It's a matter of your sins on one side and God's glory on the other side. Of Larry's sins on one side and God's glory on the other side. And when that measurement is done, every single time the verdict is the same. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And when we understand that, we're not so different all of a sudden. There's not much of a difference between us in that perspective. But the debt that we have that, that gets put up there is not a matter of a two-month or even a two-year debt. It's a matter of an eternal debt that we are beyond our ability to pay for. And yet we're invited to discover that the debt collector is not ruthless. The debt collector is not somebody we need to fear. Instead, he's, he's like a banker who walks up to you when you are flat broke and pays off your mortgage for you. You see, he could foreclose on you. He could come up and demand payment. And, and if you can't make payment, he could cash you out and make you homeless. But instead, he writes the check himself. Because the wages of our sin is death. The wages of our sin is that separation of that being cast out. That's what our sin deserves. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when that happens, when we receive that gift as our own, What's our response? Gratitude. What's our response? Celebration. Another response is, is wanting to pay it forward, to have these acts of love, these acts of kindness, and to tell other people that they can experience that themselves as well. And that's what this table symbolizes. You see, this table symbolizes that we have an opportunity to remember that that debt has been paid. We have a chance to celebrate that regularly as those who have received that forgiveness. But this table is also a symbol of the reminder that we have a mission. That we who have been invited around the table, are, we are invited to invite. We're invited to invite others to come and join us that they too could discover that God loves them. And give them a little God look. I want to actually invite the servers and the worship team to come forward at this point as we think about that 